This is your show, Parents' Voice, where we will be discussing different issues that are facing parents, families, and children across America today. We have discovered some great information. Parents these days are getting more news media attention than ever before, even though this issue has been something that's been at the forefront. Much of the media has ignored it up until now. It seems that the protest and civil rights activities of several groups, um, one in particular, Save Our Children, and other groups, QAnon, and um, have been working really hard to bring awareness to the um, pandemic within the pandemic, the pandemic the pandemic behind the pandemic that's ravishing the nation and the entire world. But there are some groups that are working really hard behind the scenes, and we want to bring some attention to those groups today, the ones that are not necessarily in the media but are working really hard on the ground, um, doing the legwork. And we have a special guest today um, by the name of Amber Brandt. She is a parent and child advocate residing in Los Angeles, California, and is the founder of the L.A. Parent Advocacy Group. Amber, are you here today? Yes, Mel. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for joining us. So, Amber, um, could you tell me um, a little bit about your group and what you are um, working on? Sure, I can. So, um, I'll go a little bit behind why I formed the group. Um, I unfortunately am a victim of domestic violence since there are my children. Um, I'm so, sorry. so, okay. Oh, oh, thank you. Sorry. I thought it was a connection. Thank you. And so, um, just to no avail, I was resource, you know, researching help resources and there isn't much out there. So, um, someone told me about fighting constitutionally and exercising our civil rights. And when I learned about that, I um, put together the Los Angeles Affidavit Group, um, which uses an NOL claim um, then a 24 affidavits to function as a grand jury, and then the executive order from 2017. And then my life got crazier, and I met Dr. Mello Desire, who has her foundation, and I merged with her in Warriors Foundation. Well, could you tell me a little bit more about the executive order that um, you're uh, referring to and what those things have, um, any information that document may contain that you think would be relevant to your group and the advocacy work, work that you're doing? Absolutely. So... The executive order, the 2017 executive order, was just fundamental and set the precedent to be able to remove judges, um, especially DCFS social workers, and anyone sitting in a government position that removes their immunity so parents can go after them lawfully and... um, hold them accountable for what they do. Well, that's pretty incredible. I don't think a lot of people know about this executive order, Mm -hmm. Amber, and I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit more about uh, why you think that this executive order was enacted. Oh, that's a very good question. So Trump himself did the executive order because he sees a lot of the, he sees the criminality that has just commandeered not only our country, but worldwide. Um, he has his finger on the pulse when it comes to what these criminals and pedophiles are doing to our children. And it goes all the way up to Washington. So he is doing, at a larger level, um, holding judges and um, lawyers, attorneys, general, attorney, general, sorry, <laughs> uh, attorney general, um, 
so many people at higher positions accountable. And you can only do that first and foremost by executing um, the executive order to strip their immunity. And he said, do us, the people of America, he said, this is a gift to you to do the same. So he hears our voices. Okay, so based on this um, executive order, you are filing an affidavit. And what does your affidavit, um, what are the, the, the causes of action in your affidavit? Well, when um, we were functioning as a grand jury, the grand jury was commandeered by the criminal prosecutor, so we can no longer go to our grand jury and say, we have been harmed, we have been wronged by, you know, say, for example, DCFS, which is what we're supposed to do to this day, we, you know, have the access to, but we don't anymore because of corruption. So now we, the people, are forming a grand jury, and it takes comprises of 24 people, and then um, you write your statement of how DCFS injured you. And then um, you couple that with the NOL claim, which has all the civil, state, federal, WIC codes that um, that affected at least one person in the group. Um, The NOL is a notice of liability. And... um, and then you couple that with executive order. And the power of the people right now is at the county level. They take it to the county sheriff, and then the process begins on holding accountable everyone corrupt in your affidavit that you name. Well, that's excellent. Now, I believe that <clears throat> this is officially called the Global Magnitsky Act of 2017 and that is after researching this act that you recently told me about so for those of you out there who are looking to get the correct information and more details about the act that Ms. Brandt is referring to is called the Global Magnitsky Act and that is M-A-G-N-I-T-S-K-Y Act and if you um, Google that, there's plenty of information out there that you can um, obtain um, in reference to human trafficking. Uh, Ms. Brandt, could you tell me a little bit more about <clears throat> your activities um, with involving um, protesting and bringing awareness and the protests that are um, currently coming up and any uh, opportunities that parents may have to join you um, and get involved in your movement? Absolutely. So, as I mentioned, um, my <laughs> life dealing with DCFS and um, just the whole upheaval that it causes, um, my parents and our children are the number one priority. So, I had to make sure that I had their trust and their um, security assured. Um, and the movement and getting their children back. So when I met Dr. Desire, um, I merged our affidavit group with the Kingdom Warriors Foundation, and we align with the same uh, values, which is changing legislation, um, human rights uh, as a law, and um, things of that nature. And the protest um, we will put up on our site uh, yeah, there's a protest on September 24th at Chateau uh, Place, which is the DCFS headquarters. And um, there will be more. Our website is onepercentage.org. Okay, and so we'll all that if you could spell that for us, please. Could you sure, spell your website for us? Sure, it's O N E. P E R C E N T A G E dot O R G. And you can call us anytime at 323 884 
1-800-285-8583. Okay, and you are, um, your next event is September 24th, 2020 at Chateau Place, the um, Los Angeles Department of Child and Family Services headquarters. And yes. I believe you will update us with more information. And how could um, how do you prefer to be contacted? Is there a an email address or um, Facebook group, or do you prefer phone calls? Um, phone is great. Um, in person, in phone, we're all about community and connecting with each other one on one in person. So um, oh, yeah, so our direct number is. Three two three eight eight four eight five eight three, and our email is info at one. Oh, sorry for the background. Percentage dot org. Okay, great. Well, thank you so much for your time today. We're going to go to a brief break. And after that, we have our next guest from the Kingdom Warrior Foundation, and we will be back with you. Thank Thank you so much. Thank you very much for having me now. I hope you enjoyed your break. We're back with our next guest. We have the Miss the, the Dr. Mello Desire. She will be joining us today to talk about her foundation, the Kingdom Warrior Foundation, founded in 2013. Um, she addresses civil rights issues and human rights violations that are plaguing the low-income community by way of homelessness, domestic violence, police brutality, wrongful convictions, and so many other things. Hi, Dr. Mello. How are you today? I'm great, thank you. Thanks for having us. Great, great. So could you tell me a little bit more about your background and how you got into child advocacy? Absolutely. I'm a neurolinguistic programmer, um, also known as a psychologist. And I got my doctorate in 2009 in New York, came back to L.A. I'm, I'm originally from Los Angeles, South L.A., born and raised in Watts. And uh, focus when I came back to L.A. was domestic violence, homelessness, and incarceration. And so that's where we began in 2013 in Skid Row, advocating for homeless youth, and seven years later, we have been focusing on changing legislation and really focusing on human rights as a law, especially affecting the urban community. Well, that sounds like a, a lot of work that you have. Could you tell me a little bit about um, how you have worked with homelessness and how you, the nexuses that you see between homelessness, domestic violence, and um, the pipeline to prison? Absolutely, uh, especially for... Um, women of color, there are very uh, limited resources. So when I was going through domestic violence myself, there was nowhere to turn to. There was no funding or programs. Um, and so I ended up in Skid Row um, looking at shelters, but also being a client. And I followed the money, attended city council meetings at City Hall, and attended the county meetings. And I really found out where the funding was coming from for L.A. County. So from there, I was able to help empower parents and young people on how to write to their legislative, the people who are causing the issues, who are the politicians who are determining how we live, they have to connect the dots. And I, you know, unconsciously became a liaison between the community and our politicians and law enforcement. And currently, as the national policy analyst for the Fraternal Order of Police, I want to utilize my knowledge in order to educate many families going through uh, discrimination of some kind. Well, I hear you say that you're a policy analyst for the National Fraternal Order of Police, which means that you probably have some good insight into the different policies that you believe could be adversely affecting the community. Could you share with us some of your expertise on 
some of the policies that are currently in place that you think should be changed via, via legislation? Absolutely. Just basic communication with our law enforcement for the last few years. They do not give you a business card or an email, but yet they carry a gun. And the training for them is less than two years um, in order for them to uh, become law enforcement. There, there is a, a big problem with that because they're not relative to the people that they're patrolling, that they're uh, protecting and serving. So we want to um, acknowledge the, the treatment and the lack of training that law enforcement have. And that's as, as a policy analyst to focus on the bill, which is the Police Bill of Rights. A lot of people don't know about the rights that police have. So anytime they commit a crime, they are protected by their own. And the Fraternal Order of Police and Professional Peacemakers Association, also known as PPA, are the two unions that law enforcement nationwide belong to. They either belong to one or the other. But if the community doesn't know about these two entities, then they will think police brutality uh, uh, is resolved by the mayor or the uh, governor of their state which actually is, lies within these two groups. So we want to merge um, education and, and create a dialogue, a national conversation with members of the Fraternal Order and PPA and the community. That's what's missing. It sounds like you're saying that there is a lack of objective accountability in various um, agencies in the government. For example, the police uh, fraternal order, which is uh, kind of a brotherhood that protects its own as you said and then you have Absolutely. Mm -hmm. um the same thing with the bar association and um and judges and politicians how can we uh, how can your organ organization um help be that liaison and uh facilitate the accountability and the openness that is necessary uh for you know in order to keep the government government agents honest and not corrupt right so wherever state you're in um you just research the president and the vice president of the fraternal order of their state every state okay. has a fraternal order um and once they find out their their respective fraternal order president and vice president then you can write to them you can visit them um they have several lodges over 2500 lodges nationwide that house these members. And it's not for us to be afraid of who they are. Google is a beautiful tool. So when you Google, for example, Kentucky Fraternal Order of Police are responsible for Mattingly and the um, officers who killed Breonna Taylor. But yes, okay. the Kentucky, yeah, the Kentucky Fraternal Order of Police have never been brought to forefront. So this is why we, we instead of directing it to the governor, or the mayor of uh, Illinois, then you just straight to the Kentucky Fraternal Order Police and ask, why hasn't these three officers been brought to justice? And that's what we want to empower through the Kingdom Warriors Foundation. It empowers the people to do just that. And also, is it possible to um, for them to come to your website and perhaps uh, write in or find a template of letter if in case they don't have the capability of uh, formulating a complete letter, is it possible for them to go to your website or get in contact with you to get them some type of um, information on what type of letter to write and what to include in this letter? Absolutely. They can actually contact us directly. Um, our website, uh, we have, because it's a sensitivity issue, we don't post a lot of um, the, ish the codes online. Uh, they can call yes. us directly at 323-884-8583, and we will do an assessment of individual cases. If they have um, a discrimination or police brutality case, uh, we will do an assessment first, and then we'll help them with the, the tools and the paperwork they need to file the, the cases. Well, yes, I, I create an autonomy. Wow, that's, that's wonderful. And I... Believe that you have a civil rights attorney that you reference and that assists you in your claims. Yes, currently, uh, well, we have several um, pro bono that are civil rights attorneys here in Los Angeles, and a lot of them, unfortunately, are friends with the same politicians that we are trying to uh, hold account. So it's very 
hard to find um, people that you can trust, which is why the people ourselves, we can empower ourselves, we can know the law ourselves and actually fight um, the right way and fight better. So that's really our main purpose is to empower the people without the help of of an attorney thus far. So am I hearing you say that many of the civil rights attorneys in the Los Angeles area in particular, as well as nationwide, though they are able to assist, they're unwilling to because they also um, have allegiance to their um, their fraternal order or the bar association, so it's hard to get the professional legal help that you need to do this. Absolutely. Civil rights is a major issue where you will have attorneys say that I'm a civil litigation attorney, but I'm not a civil rights lawyer. So they try to separate themselves because it's so complex, but really civil rights is not complex. They just don't want to address and have a certain people to be free. But the people... Well, it sounds like controlled opposition. Exactly. That's what exactly what it is. And we have to call it what it is, which is why our organization focuses on empowering the people. Because as ourselves, we can gain the knowledge and know the laws ourselves so we can govern ourselves. But because there's so many codes and laws that we are uh, not really to go through, that we rely on, on lawyers, that I believe some of them are overpaid, to be honest with you, if we can uh, empower ourselves and how to fight the law. And so there are web classes that we'll be posting up in, starting in September, um, education of politics, civil law, litigation, what the rules are in every state. Uh, we can help educate the people themselves so that way they can um, inevitably put paperwork together. And that's really the major, the major issue is putting the tons of paperwork and evidence together. And so it takes a village, and we want to support people in that facet to at least start their uh, lawsuits if they uh, want to go that route. Well, that's fantastic. It's great to know that there's different resources available, and uh, we will be posting more resources um, on our website to organizations such as yours that focus on civil rights lawsuits. Um, now, do you focus on the federal or the state civil rights, or do you help parents do their own individual civil rights? Yes, we always encourage uh, our clients to start on a state level. Uh, the paperwork okay. that they have to draft, because it's extensive, once they master the state level, local level, then they can um, do the federal much, much easier. But you can't really put the cart before the horse. So we want to start uh, the parents with basic laws, and it all depends on what their case is. So if it's discrimination or if it's police brutality, they each have their own codes and, and ways of filing suits. But the first step always is to file the claim for damage, and that's the initial paper on any level, city, state, or um, federal, that you have to file a complaint with the local jurisdiction you're complaining about. And um, that's something that we'll do at our Zoom lesson, but that's where I encourage people to do. And any questions, complex or um Issues that they have, they can always call us at 323-884-8583, and they can text us um, their inquiries as well. Or they can email us at info at onepercentage.org. That's info at onepercentage.org with their inquiries. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for your time today, Dr. Mel Desire. I think that you're doing some tremendous work, and I certainly hope that um, you'll continue to work uh, what you're doing in the community, with, and we can work as a coalition and and uh, create this change that we want so much as citizens of the world. Yes, thank you so much, Mel. I appreciate it. Yes, have a great day. Bye-bye now. Okay, bye-bye. Now let's go to break. And we are back. Now, today we are going to discuss some of the more complex legal issues that we don't get into many times because we 
uh, want to take shortcuts and not go through the uh, process that is necessary to gain the insight and knowledge that we need in order to successfully combat our opponent. And therefore, I like to just take the time to really read and go through the the nitpicky details, which are going to make the difference in your case, because we don't want to do the same thing that the opposition is doing, which is cutting corners and uh, glossing over details and not giving people due diligence and the due process that they're required to, to do in order to have a fair and unbiased trial. So today we're going to talk about California Welfare Institutions Code 355, and that is the determination of jurisdiction over a minor. Evidence, social study by petitioning agency and the concept of hearsay evidence. I like to talk about hearsay evidence in particular because it is a point of contention that so many parents complain about because the accusations that are being launched at them often come from hearsay. There's no actual evidence to support it. And in the juvenile dependency courts, which are a quasi-civil court, they have a standard of proof, which is not the same as it would be in a criminal court. So as we know from Jay-Z and countless other rappers in criminal court, in order to obtain a win or conviction, you must prove, the prosecution must prove their case beyond a reasonable doubt. However, in civil courts, the standard of proof is lower and they support their case with a standard of proof which is clear and convincing, which is, it doesn't have to be as convincing as a reasonable, beyond a reasonable doubt. So hearsay evidence is the first thing that we're going to address. Hearsay evidence is called hearsay because the social worker wasn't there or the peace officer or police officer may not have witness anything in particular. They're relying on the statements of someone else and they're repeating statements and they're writing report, which is why it's called hearsay evidence. And social study is the report that is submitted by the department from the social worker that contains all of the information that is specific to why they have taken the children into custody. So social study is one word, hearsay is another word, and this is at the jurisdictional hearing, which is rather early on in the process. Uh, Jurisdictional hearings are decided, um, they're supposed to be within 60 days once the kids are detained or 30 days, and that's to determine if the court indeed has the right to even have jurisdiction over the children. And many times we don't appeal our cases because um, parents are told that they can't appeal until they reach TPR or they're told wrong information by attorneys that cannot be trusted who tell you that you can't appeal when you actually can appeal each and every time you have a court hearing. Many times parents are told that they can't appeal until they are facing termination is because the uh, the opposition wants to get as far as they can. They want to get the case rolling, so they don't want you to appeal. They want to go as far as they can before you realize that you have the right to appeal, but you have the right to appeal from the very beginning, and the sooner you appeal, the better. So I'm going to read Section A. At the jurisdictional hearing, the court shall first consider only the question whether the minor is a person described by Section 300. Section 300 is another section that we'll discuss and I will read to you. And that determines if um, a person, a child should be in court at all, were they neglected or abused. Any legally admissible evidence that is relevant to the circumstances or acts 
that are alleged to bring the minor within the jurisdiction of the juvenile court is admissible and may be received in evidence. Proof by a preponderance of evidence must be adduced to support a finding that the minor is a person described by Section 300. So here we have yet another, another determination of the standard of proof, preponderance of evidence. So we heard about beyond a reasonable doubt in criminal trials, and then we also heard about <clears throat> um, clear and convincing evidence, which is used at a later stage in civil cases and juvenile dependency cases. And here we learned about a preponderance of evidence, which is an even lower burden of proof than clear and convincing evidence, which means they just have to have something that is even uh, hardly believable to sustain that. Um, but they still must have a preponderance. Let's not confuse that saying that they don't need, even need to have a shred of evidence. They just don't have to be able to prove it, prove it. They just need to be able to have the evidence, which is usually a social worker report is enough to sustain a jurisdictional hearing. But let's go on. Objections that could have been made to evidence introduced shall be deemed to have been made by a parent or guardian who is present at the hearing and unrepresented by counsel unless the court finds that the parent or guardian has made a knowing and intelligent waiver of the right to counsel. Objections that could have been made to evidence introduced shall be deemed to have been made by an unrepresented child. So they already know that you're going to object to these things and it's pretty much asserted for you that you object to these things as well as the attorney representing the children, um, they, they object as well. And moving on to section B, a social study prepared by the petitioning agency and hearsay evidence contained in it is admissible and constitutes competent evidence upon which finding of jurisdiction pursuant to section 300 may be based to the extent allowed by subdivision C and D. So, a social worker report is admissible to the extent of C and D. So, there are some limitations on the social worker report being admissible into evidence, and we're going to speak about these things so that way if you're in the very beginning stages of your case and your children have recently been detained, you need to know under what circumstances they can su submit that evidence. The uh, the next section says that for purposes of this section, social study means written reports furnished to the juvenile court and to all parties to their counsel by the county probation or welfare department in any matter involving the custody status or welfare of a minor. The preparer of the social study shall be made available for cross-examination upon a timely request by a party. The court may deem the preparer available for cross-examination if it determines that the preparer is on a telephone standby and can be present in court. Now, many people don't know that at the jurisdictional hearing, if they request to cross-examine the social worker and the social worker is unavailable for cross-examination, at that point in time, your case can be thrown out because this hearsay report is not valid as evidence unless the social worker is there to support their statements and for cross-examination. Many parents don't know this. They don't ask for the social worker to be present. They don't know that this is important. But one of the very first that you can have a case kicked out is if you ask. Now, don't Let's, let's make this clear. You have to build, build a record for appeal. If you don't request that the social worker be there for a cross-examination and say, I object to this report because I would like to cross-examine cross the social worker, and they say, well, they're not here or they can't come, that would be a point where you could appeal and win your appeal because that is important for due process and many case laws support appeals that have appealed on those bases. So you would have the case law to, to support that. So, but if you don't uh, exercise that right and you don't speak up, object and ask 
for the social worker to be present, then it will be assumed that you didn't want them or require them to be present, and then they will um, move on to the next hearing phase, which it is not what you want. On another note, they do have 10 days, up to 10 days to postpone a trial in order for the social worker to come or the peace officer or whoever made the report to come and um, take the stand on the accusations that they made against you. However, if these 10 days pass, then they're past the statute of limitations to prosecute you based on a report that someone can't even come in to address. So remember, these allegations must be supported with in-person um, if a person accuses you of something, make them come to court and say it to your face. Don't be okay with them just writing a report, sending it off to court, and then going on to take the next person's kids. The more you make them work, the less that they're going to be willing to do these things. Make them come in and cross-examine them. Ask them all the questions about the um, accusations that they made against you, and that even that alone will assist greatly in um, helping you build your case. Uh, if in the in the event that the accusations are false, um, it will be very hard for them to come in there and support that. So I'm going to go on to section C. The hearsay declarant is a peace officer, health practitioner, social worker, a teacher, or anybody in that capacity. The hearsay declarant is available for cross examination. For the purposes of this section, the court, the court may deem a witness available if they are on standby. The court shall not be construed to limit the right of a party to the, to the jurisdictional hearing to subpoena a witness whose statement is contained in the social study or to introduce admissible evidence relevant to the weight of the hearsay evidence or the credibility or the, of the hearsay evidence. So, introduce admissible evidence relevant to the weight of the hearsay evidence or the credibility of the hearsay declarant. So once this social study is received into evidence, you want to address every single thing it says. Subpoena the witnesses. Anybody who said anything, you want to send them a subpoena. If they don't come in, that will decrease the weight of the hearsay statement as well. If you... Um, if there are uh, the person who said it is unreliable, you want to address their credibility. Do they have a criminal record associated with um, with uh, crimes of moral interpretude? That means lying or stealing, fraud, things that have to do with being dishonest. If this person has a criminal record, or if they have been caught before being dishonest, and that will reduce the credibility of your evidence. So you want to go into this court case thinking like an attorney and understanding that their report is evidence and you're there to attack the credibility of that evidence. And the first thing you want to do is make them work for everything that they do and everything that they have said. Um, make them come in, say it to your face. If they don't want to come in and you've sent the subpoena, then that goes on record that they did not show up after they were subpoenaed to court, and that helps your case. Um, substituted, I'm going to go on to the next section here, and these are some amendments. Um, let's, what does it say? Okay. All right, so we have some cases here, some case laws that you may want to refer to if you are going to file an appeal at the jurisdictional hearing. Um, at the time of the jurisdictional hearing. So the first um, the first section I will read of the Welfare Institutions Code, it says, WIC 300, which authorizes the juvenile court to adjudge a minor to be a dependent child of the court under the circumstances enumerated therein, pertains only to the jurisdictional phase of a dependency hearing. And the statutory burden of proof by WIC 355, proofed by a preponderance of evidence, also only applies to the determination of a jurisdictional hearing. So the proof by a preponderance of evidence only applies to jurisdictional hearing. Once they move on to another hearing, 
they increase the amount of proof that is necessary. So now they must move on to clear and convincing evidence. So that's what it says here. And the case law you want to use to support that is um, Cheryl H., um, California Appeals, 2nd District, March 30th, 1984, 153 California California Appeals, um, where their, um, the case was actually um, dismissed because they did not prove their case by a preponderance of evidence. So that is going to support your claim if you need the case law. And also, if you need additional case law to support your jurisdictional hearing, please contact me at contact at saveourkids.site. That's contact, C-O-N-T-A-C-T, at saveourkids.site. So you can uh, reach out to me there, and I'll be more than happy to send you case law to support your appeal, as well as any information that you need to, uh, any templates that you may need to write your appeal in California or other states. Also, I want to mention in all states, whenever you want to file an appeal, you have to first file a notice of appeal. That is usually one week after your hearing. So you only have one week after your hearing to file a notice of appeal. After that, your rights expire and you cannot appeal the case um, unless there's a special circumstance. In this case, you have the pandemic, which would be a valid excuse for why you weren't able to get your notice of appeal in on time. And so if you are in an event that you're eight or nine, maybe 10 days away from your hearing and you still feel like you're a little bit late, but you want to appeal your case, if you use COVID-19 or coronavirus and related issues, uh, state lockdowns or different issues related to your ability to communicate with the court and ask for this notice of appeal, that should be an excuse for them to give you a waiver and um, accept your notice of appeal. After you file the notice of appeal, the next step would be to obtain the court record and a transcript of the the court reporter's record in order to have all of the documents that you reference when you write your appeal. So you must have reference documents. You can't just write your own opinion. You have to write and you have to reference um, other cases that have legal precedents in your state. You have to write um, about what happened and point to the incident, um, where it happens on the record, and you have to also um, refer to any other court documents that have been submitted into the court and are on the official record. You can't submit your own documents unless you're arguing that they suppressed evidence, which is another, that's a topic for another day. But um, you must always address and cite and refer to um, case law precedent in your state, which is binding, and the judge, the appeals judge, must rule along with the precedents in your state if your case is similar to that case, as well as the court transcript, as well as anything in the court file that is there. Those those things are valid in the appeals court. The legislature intended WIC 355 at jurisdictional hearing and dependency proceeding court may consider any matter of information relevant and material to circumstances or acts alleged to bring minor within the court's jurisdiction. However, dependency findings must support by a preponderance of evidence legally admissible in civil cases. So the evidence, even though uh, it may seem great, it must be legal, legally admissible in any civil case according to the rules of procedure in civil court for your state. So if they don't fit that, then they're not, able, they're not good enough for the, the civil court. Uh, even if it's juvenile dependency, um, those evidences cannot be submitted if they don't. Um, followed the the guidelines for admissible evidence, which means that anybody who says something must come in to support that. And remember that anybody who makes a statement must come in to support that statement upon subpoena or that evidence must be thrown out. <clears throat> Let's continue. To create To create two standards, one governing admissibility and another establishing the level of proof sufficient to support a jurisdictional determination, but the two standards should not be regarded as entirely distinct. They arise in the context of two consecutive sentences within a single code section. 
Further, the language of the second sentence indicates that it was intended to restrict the sentence immediately preceding it, which means that um, even though the level of proof is lower, and that is from the governing admissibility, and that's from the level of proof, when you're thinking about the governing admissibility, it's governed by the rules of procedure, which means that whatever you submit it must be um, it must be restricted by the rules governing the state for admissible evidence. Now, um, if we continue, thus the second sentence of WIC 355 prohibits a court from basing its decision on evidence that would not have been admissible independent of a broad admissibility standard contained in the first sentence. The general limitation does not render evidence incompetent simply because it is, it, is, it is exempt from the hearsay rule by the Welfare and Institutions Code rather than some other civil statute. And this is Melinda S. Um, California, September 6, 1990. We have the case law to support that, um, that sentence. Now, I'll read it one more time. Um, it says that... Um, WIC 355 prohibits a court from basing its decision on evidence that would not have been admissible, independent of broad admissibility standards contained in the first sentence. So, which means is it must meet the um, the requirements. And this is a good thing for you to use whenever you're trying to show that they did not meet their standard of proof. Um, where the evidence was not su sufficient to establish the children were at substantial risk of serious physical injury as the result of parental inability to adequately su supervise or protect the children, the evidence does not support a finding that each child was within the jurisdiction of the juvenile court. Now, this simply says that substantial risk of serious physical injury is the standard by which it is determined if a child is at any time a child is removed because someone has said something that they shouldn't say not that I don't um, acknowledge emotional abuse as a serious form of domestic violence in order to remove a child they have to be at substantial risk of serious physical injury so DCFS can be involved in your life if you are if someone's emotionally abusing or they find that there's some something where someone may have some dysfunction in the family, but they cannot remove your child unless there is a risk of serious physical injury. And that would be the second cause of action that you use in your jurisdiction to su support the to support your side that they do not have adequate evidence to support that they were in harm of serious physical injury. Um, moving on to hearsay. Um, so actually, before I go there, I want to talk about the case to support that, and that is JN, California Appeals, 6th District, January 6, 2010. So that is a case law that you want to look up in Google and refer to to support that your children were detained without the substantial risk of serious physical injury. And even though these... I'm reading from California WIC Institutions Code. These codes are the same throughout the nation because they get these codes directly from the Federal Welfare Institutions Code. So they are pretty much um, the same, though they may differ slightly in your state, and you always want to refer to your state's welfare institution codes, but this information is valid which, regardless of what state you live in. Um, Although WIC 355 creates an exception to the hearsay rule by permitting otherwise inadmissible hearsay evidence to be received by the court in order to provide it with a coherent picture of the child's situation, it further requires that a finding of dependency be based upon evidence legally admissible under the evidence code in the trials of ordinary civil cases. The juvenile court must disregard it and focus exclusively upon admissible evidence if the social study and the social worker is not there to support their their document. So consequently, and this is 
Donald R. California Appeals, uh, 3rd District, October 20th, 1987. <clears throat> now, um, I could go on about with more of this, but I just wanted to, to read a few things to you so you could um, get the most important information. So I'm going to just go through and read the highlights here. Um, sufficiency of evidence in Cal WIC 355, Section 4, it says that uh, reunification services should not have been denied because a finding of abuse by a preponderance of the evidence did not satisfy the clear and convincing evidence showing required for denial of services and a failure to protect finding by clear and convincing evidence did not reasonably encompass the clear and convincing showing of infliction of severe physical harm required by WIC 361.5, Section B6. So, you know, people are getting their, their cases overturned every day, and it's just a matter of going through the the code and um, starting your appeals process earlier. So again, before I end with you today, I just want to let you know that regardless of what stage you are in the process, whether you um, are having, you know, interactions with DCFS or coming to visit you or they're trying to get into your door or you're already, um, your kids have been detained and you're at the jurisdictional setting, you can start the appeals process and, um, I will discuss further what to do if you haven't, if your kids haven't been detained by DCFS, but you're trying to prevent that from happening. Um, anyway, I suggest that everyone uh, read this if you are in the state of California, and if you'd like a copy sent directly to you or emailed directly to you for your reference, once again, just email me at contact at saveourkids.site, and I will be sure to send that to you. Otherwise, thank you so much for joining me today, and I look forward to seeing you next week. Have a great one.